dismissed to Children's Church. Go ahead and open your Bibles with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians 5, we're continuing our series on the Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, that's page 988. 1 Thessalonians 5, and before we read God's word, let's pray for the Spirit's help. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would please help us by the grace of your Spirit now. Uh, Lord, we're weak and weary, so please give us energy to pay attention, to tune in. Uh, Lord, give us sensitive hearts that are eager to be convicted, renewed, transformed. Uh, Work, Lord, by your Spirit. We do pray that um, as I preach, People would sense you working in their lives, you speaking to them, you calling them to yourself. Uh, Lord, give me grace to preach with clarity and power. Through Jesus we pray, amen. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 18, or pardon me, 19 says this, Do not quench the Spirit. May God give us ears to hear his word. To begin with today, I want to tell you about the most powerful sermon I ever heard. Uh, The year was 2008, and I was attending a pastor's conference in Louisville, Kentucky. We had already heard several sermons, and the conference was drawing to a close. But one of the final preachers we were going to hear was the theologian R.C. Sproul. Now, I don't know if you know anything about R.C. Sproul, but for several decades, he was really one of the outstanding teachers in the church. He was well known for his incredible clarity, his engaging communication style, and so many of us have been blessed by his books and messages, many of which are in our church library. Well, by this particular time in his life, R.C. Sproul was old and he was in very poor health. He suffered from emphysema, and they actually wheeled him onto the platform in a wheelchair, and then they situated him on a stool behind the pulpit. And I can still vividly remember, as he kind of positioned himself there, got his Bible open, got his notes out, I actually felt pity for him. I thought it was almost embarrassing to have this old man get up there and preach when his health was so obviously poor. Well, R.C., he began his sermon, and at first everything seemed ordinary enough. Uh, He still had his typical clarity, still very winsome. But as he preached, something truly extraordinary started happening. Somewhere along the way, and, and I can't really define when it started happening, but somewhere along the way, I totally lost track of time. You know, I'm sure you never do this, but there have been times in You know, when I'm hearing sermons that I'm checking my watch to see how much time is left in this sermon, you know what I'm talking about? That entire impulse was totally gone. It was as if I was almost suspended in this timeless state. What's more, as the sermon progressed, I really felt as if I was being squeezed in a vice. Just the mental pressure, the spiritual pressure was almost unbearable. I'll be honest, it felt almost like a terror. I felt as if I was standing before God himself, just me and God doing business, and it was, it was kind of overwhelming. Now, interestingly, R.C.'s style that day was not very animated. Uh, like I said, he had emphysema, very poor health, uh, was confined to a stool, he wasn't, you know, pacing around and stomping and yelling. And the topic was rather heady and intellectual. The sermon was actually entitled, The Curse Motif of the Atonement, uh, which does not particularly sound like a very engaging sermon. And yet, nonetheless, it was a transcendent experience that I will never forget. After the sermon was over, I talked to some of the other pastors that were there, and all of us, it felt as if we had been shocked by lightning. Uh, We all agreed that this was something very unique, very unusual. 
in the years since that conference, I've run into other pastors who happen to have been there that same day, and they all testify to a man that this was a very unique experience. It was almost as if we had been taken into the throne room of God with Isaiah and Isaiah 6 and seen God's glory. Actually, since that event, several people have written things about this sermon and how unusually powerful it was and how those of us who were privileged to hear it felt transformed. But here's the funny thing. A couple of years later, I tracked down the sermon online and I listened to a recording of it. And listening to this recording, I was actually kind of disappointed. It was a decent sermon, but it did not have that same just mind-blowing transcendent power that I experienced being there in person. I mean, the content was fine, it was true and helpful and clear and all, but it just felt like an ordinary sermon. It made me wonder, what made the difference? Why did hearing this sermon in person just shock my socks off, uh, and why did hearing it in a recording feel kind of humdrum? Well, it is true that I wasn't expecting much that day when they wheeled RC out on a wheelchair, and that probably lowered my expectations, probably prepared me for a surprise. But in reflecting a lot on this sermon, I've come to believe that that was certainly not the only factor. I've come to believe that really the main factor that made the real difference was that God's Spirit came in power on His Word. As R.C. preached, God's Spirit came with conviction, with power, with grace, and that's why so many of us felt as if we had been transported into God's very presence. And that's something you can't automatically reproduce on a recording. Now, this idea of God's Word coming with special Holy Spirit power, this is not something that just I've invented or thought up. The Bible itself talks about this. Take a look at this verse here on the wall from 1 Thessalonians 1.5. In 1 Thessalonians 1.5, Paul says this, Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Now, if you look at that verse, there are two ways that the Word can come to people. It can come in word only. It's properly preached, properly communicated, uh, but you hear it just with your physical ears. The other way that the gospel can come is also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. The same gospel is proclaimed, the same message preached, but for whatever reason, God's Spirit comes in power and brings about a conviction, a transformation uh, that would not be there without the Holy Spirit. It's something I'd encourage you to pray every single time we open God's Word here, and also for your personal devotions. Lord, send your Spirit in power as I engage with you through your Word. Well, what does it really mean for God's Spirit to come upon His Word with power? Why does this seem to happen at some times and not at others? Is this something that we can facilitate or maybe manipulate, cause to happen? And when this does happen, what should we do in response? These are some of the questions we're going to be considering this morning in our next sermon on the Holy Spirit. Now, just to remind you of where we've been in this little mini-series, in our long series through 1 Thessalonians, we came to chapter 5, verse 19, which says, Do not quench the Spirit. In my estimation, however, most Christians don't understand enough about who the Holy Spirit is and what he's doing to even put that verse into practice. So what we're doing in this little mini-series, we're slowing down, we're laying a foundation. Who is the Holy Spirit? What does he do? And we're doing that so that eventually 1 Thessalonians 5.19 will make sense. We began this series a few weeks ago by talking about the way in which the Holy Spirit is a divine person with whom you should seek to have a relationship. It's possible, possible you've never thought that thought before. 
But if the Spirit is Almighty God, the third person of the Trinity, and if he dwells in the heart of every believer the second they trust in Jesus, it seems to make sense that you should learn to follow his leading, be sensitive to his conviction, and learn how to align your life with his work. In this series, we've also talked about the way in which the Spirit's ministries, they changed considerably after the day of Pentecost. Of course, the Holy Spirit's eternal God. He's always been there, always existing with the Father, with the Son. After Jesus ascended back to heaven and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, there were ministries he began doing that he wasn't doing previously. And chief among these are indwelling all believers and baptizing all believers. Then two weeks ago, we talked about the very important ministry of Holy Spirit conviction. Conviction. Conviction is what cracks open our hard hearts. It breaks up that rocky soil so that we can hear the Word of God properly and respond to it. This is a very quick summary of where we've been in this series, and like I've been suggesting, if you haven't been here for these messages, I'd strongly encourage you to listen to them or watch them. They're both available, both the audio and the video are available on our website. It will be to your advantage to understand more about the Holy Spirit so that you can properly relate to Him. Well, today we're going to be talking about another vital ministry of the Spirit, the work of regeneration. The Spirit's work of regeneration. What is this? How does this take place? Uh, are there things that we can do to encourage it? That, by God's grace, is what we're going to be talking about this morning. Well, to begin with, let's define this term regeneration. What is regeneration? If we don't begin here, none of this discussion is going to make any sense at all. So what is regeneration? Well, if you just look at that word regeneration and you break it apart, you got re and generation. Okay, I don't want to be too redundant, but re and generation. Now, what does that prefix re communicate? We've actually got a lot of words in English that have re at the very beginning. Repeat, restate, reset, reinstitute. You could probably think of more on your own. What does that re mean? It means again, a second time. Then you've got that word generate. Generate is just a big word for to create or to give birth to something. Raise your hand if you own a generator. Who owns a generator here? Eh, roughly half or a third. Uh, what do generators do? You pull your generator out when the power goes out, and, and what that does is it produces electricity, creates electricity so that you got lights and an oven and so forth. Am I right? Well, putting these ideas together, re and generate, what it means is to give birth to again, to create again. There's another Bible term for this that I'm sure you've heard of. Uh, it's the idea of being born again. That's what regeneration is. It's a second birth, a new birth, a new creation. Now, to explain the background here, since Adam's sin, all of us are born sinners. We're not made sinners when we sin. No, we sin because we are sinners. We sinned in Adam, and all of us are born with sinful hearts already alienated from God. What this means practically is that by nature, none of us loves God, none of us seeks God, none of us desires God. By nature, all of us are rebels. We're born spiritually blind, spiritually dead. We want to do our own thing. God, I'd rather you not tell me what to do. Thank you very much. Just leave me alone. I want to be my own God with my own laws, my own rules. That's who we are by nature. Isn't it true? Now, when we say that people are spiritually dead, don't take that to mean that everybody's as evil as conceivably possible. Of course not. Of course there are some people that are more moral than others, less moral than others. Not everybody is an Adolf Hitler or an Osama bin Laden. But what we do mean when we say that we're born spiritually dead is that we have no inherent love for God, no inherent desire for God. 
In the words of Romans 3.10, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Let that sink in, brothers and sisters. That was you, that was me before we came to Jesus. Spiritually dead, infinitely more interested in watching Netflix than reading the Bible. Infinitely more interested in going to a football game than a church gathering. Infinitely more interested in hanging out with and partying with non-Christians than Christians. That's you and me by nature. Well, if this is our nature, it begs the question, how then can anybody be saved? How can anybody come to believe God's word, to repent of sin and embrace the Lord Jesus? Well, the Bible's answer to that is this whole experience of being born again or regeneration. This is when the Spirit convicts you of your sin. He opens your heart and he gives you faith to believe on the Lord Jesus. That's the only way those of us who are natural rebels, natural sinners, can come to embrace the Lord Jesus. Now here's something I want to make emphatic, and this might surprise some of you, especially if maybe you've never thought very deeply about this before, but realize the work of regeneration, it must take place before we believe, and it's actually what enables us to believe. Let me say that again and explain what I mean by that. The work of regeneration, it must take place before we believe, and it's actually what enables us to believe. I know in common English, we talk about born again as like basically the day I pray the sinner's prayer. Uh, that's not exactly the way that the Bible speaks of it, and that's kind of careless. I'd encourage us to use Bible terms and Bible ways. I'm going to read you several verses, and as I read them, ask yourself, which takes place first, the spirit giving life or people believing? Which takes, not like in time, you know, they're all happening like in the same experience, but which happens first? The lights come on or people see? The ears get unplugged or people hear? Which takes place first? Acts 16, 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. John 3, 3. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I can give you several more verses all to this effect. God's Spirit opens our hearts and then we believe. He turns the lights on and then we see. He unplugs our ears and then we hear. And that's why we say regeneration takes place first and it's what enables us to believe the gospel. I know I fell into this category, but a lot of us actually have to rethink our salvation experience. We tend to define our salvation experience by that day when we prayed the sinner's prayer. Now, of course, praying the sinner's prayer is important, but realize there's a whole lot more going on behind the scenes, in our minds, in our hearts, which lead us to pray the sinner's prayer. Charles Spurgeon, a really wonderful meditation on this. this is, he's talking about his own conversion. But see if you can follow this. He says, when I was coming to Christ... I thought I was doing it all myself. And though I sought the Lord earnestly, I had no idea the Lord was seeking me. I do not think the young convert is at first aware of this. One weeknight, when I was sitting in the house of God, I was not thinking much about the preacher's sermon, for I did not believe it. Uh, again, he's just kind of sitting there, you know, not, not really paying too much attention to the sermon because it wasn't very good. The thought struck me, how did you come to be a Christian? I sought the Lord. But how did you come to seek the Lord? The truth flashed across my mind in a moment. I should not have sought the Lord unless there had been some previous influence in my mind to make me seek Him. I prayed, thought I. But then I asked myself, how came I to pray? I was induced to pray by reading the Scriptures. How came I to read the Scriptures? I did read them, but what led me to do so? 
Then in a moment, I saw that God was at the bottom of it all and that he was the author of my faith. And so the whole doctrine of grace opened up to me. And from that doctrine, I have not departed to this day. And I desire to make this my constant confession. I ascribe my conversion wholly to God. You follow that? If you get what I'm saying, this will open to you an entire world of praise and worship to God. When you come to discover that God was at work in my life, maybe for years, opening my eyes, opening my heart, convicting me of my sin, patiently drawing me to himself, and, and then it kind of culminated in praying the sinner's prayer, you'll be filled with love, praise, adoration, gratitude, and you'll be able to say with the Apostle Paul, Romans eleven thirty three, 33, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his, his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid. For from him and through him and to him are, are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Well, that's a little bit about what regeneration is. Let's talk about a second question. How does the Holy Spirit regenerate? How does this happen? How does the Holy Spirit open people's eyes, open people's hearts, so that they embrace the Lord Jesus? Now, when we think about the how of regeneration, there are actually two groups of passages, and this is fascinating. Two groups of passages. The first group of passages stress that we're born again by God's Spirit. So, for instance, in John 3, 8, Jesus says this, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Or again, Titus 3, 5, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. So without a doubt, we are born again. We are regenerated by the Spirit. We can't manipulate this. We can't fabricate it. You know, this is not just the right result of perfect mood music and, and, and lights and smoke machines. Uh, no, God's Spirit must work in someone's heart if they're to be born again. That being said, there's a second group of passages that talk about the new birth. And this second, pass, this second group stressed that we're born again through the word of God. James 1.18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. 1 Peter 1.23. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So which is it? Are we born again by God's spirit or are we born again by God's word? Are we made alive by the Holy Spirit working in our hearts, or are we made alive by the Word of God? Or is it possibly both at the same time? Let me see if I can illustrate this up here. Take a look up at the board here, and I'm going to walk you through this diagram. Where did it, where am I? I'm going backwards. Hold on. Hit the wrong button. I got to tell you, I am not the most wonderful, like, what do you call it, computer animator. Uh, so this is going to look pretty primitive, pretty ugly. That's okay. You know, I was, I was making this about 8 o'clock last night. Let that picture represent you. All right? That's you with your sinful, fallen, spiritually dead heart. And it's me too. You know, I'm not, I'm not trying to shame anybody. We're all sinners like this. But that's you and me. Spiritually dead, spiritually blind, alienated from God, dead in our sins. And unless something radical happens, we will die in our sins and be lost forever. Sorry. Other direction. This then represents the Word of God. And the Word of God needs to be communicated to us in some way, shape, or form. Could be a sermon, could be a Sunday school lesson, could be our parents sharing the gospel with us on the edge of our bed, could be a track, could be Christian radio, could be a text message, could be an email. But the Word of God needs to be communicated to us in some way. Now, 
I couldn't think of a way to illustrate this, but that's supposed to be aimed at the individual's ear, okay? I can't preach like into your heart, but I can preach into your ears. Okay, so you're hearing the word of God, you're comprehending it with your, your brain and whatnot, but if, all that, if that's all that takes place, we'll be no, no different than the Pharisees. I mean, the Pharisees, they saw Jesus' miracles, they heard Jesus' teaching, and it had virtually no influence on them other than making them quite angry. So what do you think this dove represents? Represents the Holy Spirit. Now, let me be clear, the Holy Spirit is not a dove. Okay, he came in the form of a dove at Jesus' baptism, but the Holy Spirit is not a burr. He's the third person of the Trinity. But just for the sake of our illustration, we're going to let the Holy Spirit be represented by a dove. You following me? Here's what needs to take place for our hearts to be changed, for us to be born again. The Holy Spirit must come down and work as the word is being preached. Again, I was trying to illustrate that. I don't know if you really got the idea here. But the Holy Spirit works in conjunction with and through the word being proclaimed. And again, that word can be proclaimed in a wide variety of ways, tracks, sermons, Christian radio, texts, whatever. But if the Holy Spirit does not work, it's just going to be sort of like data going into our heads and we're going to think it's a bunch of foolishness. And again, I didn't know how to represent this on my diagram here, but whereas my words are going into his ears, the Holy Spirit is working in the individual's heart. You see that? And what happens is when God's Spirit does that, we are born again. We're given a new nature. Our eyes are opened so that we then believe the gospel and uh, have some joy in Jesus. I recognize that you know even the best Christians have difficult days and difficult seasons and can go through rough times, but this is the process where, whereby we're born again. Does that make some sense? Since this is a sermon, I won't ask if there are any questions, but I feel tempted to do that. If you do have questions on this, by all means, feel free to ask me at the door. I'd love to explain this further. But it's when the word of God is proclaimed and when the spirit works through that word, they're working like hand in glove. Okay, the, the word is like the conduit through which the spirit works. Don't think that somebody's like walking around the jungle or something like that, and out of the blue, they just get regenerated. No, they must hear the word proclaimed for the spirit to give life, which is why, by the way, we earnestly pray and desire for missionaries to go into all the corners of the world, because without that, people cannot be saved. Now, here's something I really want to stress, and I've, I've mentioned this already in the description, but let me say it again. God's Spirit always regenerates through the Word of God. God's Spirit always regenerates through the Word of God, and that's why we've got these two groups of passages, some saying the Spirit does the work, some saying the Word does the work. Again, the reason for that is the Word is the conduit through which the Spirit works. This is why Jesus says in John 6, 36, call that verse up. This is one of the most important verses for understanding this entire discussion. Jesus says this, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. You know, me, if I just get up here and rant and rave and stomp around and scream, that's not going to give anybody the new birth. It's the spirit's work. And yet, what does he say? The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Says the word is proclaimed that God gives life. And this is why, by the way, we want to do everything that we can to get as much Bible into our evangelism, our preaching, our teaching as possible, as much Bible into our one-on-one -on -one witnessing, as much Bible as we can into our global missions. God's Spirit does not give life through funny stories and jokes. He doesn't give life through sociological data and statistics, though admittedly those can be helpful for illustrative purposes. God's Spirit does not give life through common sense tips on life or pop psychology. No, the channel through which the Spirit gives the new birth is the Word of God. The Word of God read and taught and sung and preached. So congregation, let's do everything that we can to keep the Bible front and center in our individual lives, in our family lives, in the life of the church. 
For again, God's Spirit gives life through the Word of God. Well, that's what regeneration is and how God's Spirit regenerates. Let me give you now six reflections on this work of regeneration. These will be relatively brief, but six reflections on the Spirit's work of regeneration. Number one, the Bible frequently compares the Spirit's work of regeneration with the original creation of the universe. The Bible frequently compares the Spirit's work of regeneration with the original creation of the universe. Galatians 6.15, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.7, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. I know I already read it once already, but listen to 2 Corinthians 4.6 again. God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I assume you're somewhat familiar with the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2. And incidentally, this is just another reason why it's so important to get the creation account right. If you get Genesis 1 and 2 wrong, don't be surprised if you get the salvation experience wrong. Everything really does go back to Genesis. But just like God created the entire universe out of nothing by the speaking of a word, so also he speaks life into your soul through the speaking of a word. And get this, just as great of a miracle as it was to create this universe, so also just as great a miracle it is whenever any sinner experiences new life. Being born again, this is not some natural experience, not some psychological experience, not some sociological thing. It is a miracle of God. Just like God created plants and creeping things and humans out of nothing, he created life in your soul. Which again is why we say the Bible frequently compares the Spirit's work of regeneration with the original creation of the universe. Quickly, a second reflection. Second, it's the Spirit's ministry of regeneration that enables a person to believe truths that initially appear unreasonable. It's the Spirit's ministry of regeneration that enables a person to believe truths that initially appear unreasonable. Now you think about it, but so many of the truths of the gospel, they feel downright nonsensical to our flesh. And I mean, you you can honestly admit this. Um, This is the flesh working, this is the devil blinding us, but things like the virgin birth, the miracles, the resurrection, they just seem like uh, legends and fairy tales, don't they, to our flesh? I mean, they're not in reality, but this is how our fallen flesh responds to these things. I mean, just imagine you're trying to explain the virgin birth to a modern American. Uh, They're going to think, okay, what's wrong with you? Did you not pay attention in like high school biology? Don't you understand how human reproduction work? You probably believe in leprechauns and unicorns, don't you? It's not only the virgin birth, but so many of the truths of the Bible fall into that category. They are naturally foolishness to us. And unless God opens our eyes, they'll remain in that foolish, ridiculous category. Listen to 1 Corinthians 1.18. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are being called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. What is it that transforms somebody from seeing Jesus and the resurrection and the miracles uh, from in the same category as leprechauns to all of a sudden the hope and the joy of their soul? It's the Spirit's work of regeneration. That's the only thing that can enable blind eyes to see. I earnestly ask you, have you had this experience? Have you been born again by God's Spirit? 
Have you gone from seeing Jesus as just so much nonsense and silliness to all of a sudden the Lord and Savior of your life? Realize I'm not asking, do you go to church or are a member of a church? Plenty of non-Christians do that. I'm not asking, do you read the Bible or enjoy singing hymns? Again, non-Christians can do that. But has God's Spirit so worked in your heart that the Jesus you used to see is just boring, totally irrelevant, totally dull, has all of a sudden become the joy of your life? Has that happened to you? Has God's Spirit given you life? Quickly, a third reflection on regeneration. Third, since this work of regeneration is something only God's Spirit can do, let us pray desperately and continually for God to do it. Since this work of regeneration is something only God, God's Spirit can do, let us pray desperately and continually for God to do it. Now, of course, we have a responsibility to proclaim the gospel, to proclaim the word of God. And if we do not tell others about Jesus, they cannot be saved. You must call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. But at the same time, if God's Spirit does not work, they cannot call upon the name of the Lord. So every single time you share the gospel, whether it be with your kids, your neighbors, your coworkers, uh, the guy who just met at the park, beg God, even while you're talking, beg God, Lord, open their eyes. Lord, I am inadequate, I am foolish, I, I don't know the answers to all their questions. Please, Holy Spirit, work. Open their hearts, open their eyes, because again, if that doesn't work, they will think you're kind of nuts. But such is the cost of following Jesus. I'd encourage you to pray this every single day as you approach the Lord's Day worship here. Lord, as we teach the Bible, as we preach the Bible at Trinity, please give people the new birth. I'd encourage at least one or two of you to make this kind of like your ministry to bring this up during our prayer times. Maybe every Sunday morning during Sunday school, every Wednesday night, just remind us, because we often forget these things, but remind us. Let's pray that God's Spirit would work and give people life as the Word of God is proclaimed. Again, only God's Spirit can cause people to be born again, but He often does it in response to our prayers. So brothers and sisters, let us pray for this diligently, regularly. Quickly, fourth, let us praise God for the Spirit's work of regeneration, both in our hearts and whenever another individual is born again. Let us praise God for the Spirit's work of regeneration, both in our hearts and whenever another individual is born again. Now this should just make sort of common sense if you've been paying attention to what I've been saying all along. Just like we thank God the Father for his work of creation, preservation, providence, just like we thank God the Son for his work of dying on the cross, rising again, intercession for the work that he's going to do in the future, so also we should praise the Holy Spirit for his works, and not the least, this work of giving us life when we were dead in our sins. If you're looking for a good illustration of this, you might consider the fourth verse of And Can It Be. I should have suggested to Stu that we sing this. I didn't think about it till late last night. I grew up singing And Can It Be dozens of times. And when you come to verse 4, I didn't really know what this was talking about. But now, having learned what the Bible teaches about regeneration, I know exactly what this is talking about. But consider what Charles Wesley wrote. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin in nature's night. In a way, this is your testimony, regardless of when you came to faith or how you came to faith. Nonetheless, this is your testimony. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray old language, but it's almost like this tractor beam from the eye of God and quickening. You heard of the quick and the dead, quick's old-fashioned language for alive. A, a, a life-giving ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. I didn't even realize I was, a, I was in a dungeon. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Again, I sang that dozens of times growing up. I had no clue what it was talking about. But what it is, it's a song of worship and praise to God for this work of regeneration. 
We should also remember this whenever we hold a baptism service. Lord willing, we'll be doing it not too many months from now. We don't believe water baptism saves or regenerates at all. I think that that is dangerous false teaching. But what water baptism is, it's in part a celebration that God's Spirit has done His work of regeneration. Sometimes we Baptists, we get falsely accused of being man-centered when we do baptism and looking at it exclusively as the celebration of a person's commitment. I know that we've got Presbyterian, Methodist, Lutheran brothers and sisters who sometimes say, you Baptists, you claim that you worship God, but in your baptism service, you're actually worshiping the person being baptized. To that accusation, all I can say is that you really don't get how we view regeneration here. Yes, the person baptized did believe the gospel, but they only believed the gospel because God's Spirit gave them the new birth. So ultimately, we're not celebrating and worshiping this individual. We're praising God for the gift that he's given in causing this person to be born again. You follow that? Keep that in mind the next time we hold our baptism service. And again, if you're interested in making your faith public through water baptism, talk to me after the service. I'd be delighted to begin a conversation along those lines. Quickly, two more reflections. The Bible views the believer's regeneration as the beginning of the life of the new heavens and the new earth. Now, this is deep, and I even hesitated to include this because it's hard to explain, but let me see if I can explain it concisely. The Bible views the believer's regeneration as the beginning of the life of the new heavens and the new earth. Now, hopefully you understand a little bit about how the Bible teaches that one day Jesus is going to come again, he's going to resurrect the living and the dead, he's going to cast Satan into hell, but then he's going to create the new heavens and the new earth. Okay, this current creation, it's cursed by sin, there's thorns and thistles and suffering, but a day is coming that God's going to create a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth. Nod your heads if you know a little bit of what I'm talking about here. Most of you, thank God. What you need to understand is that just like the Bible connects the original creation with our regeneration, it also connects our regeneration with the new creation. And the idea is as if the sparks of the new creation are in our souls through being born again. Like the seeds of the new heaven and the new earth are in us by being regenerated. There are actually many verses that teach this, but again, maybe the simplest is 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. Now, again, you've probably heard that verse many times, but listen to Revelation 21.5. This is talking about the new heavens and the new earth, like after Jesus comes again, and, and listen to see if you notice any similarities. Revelation 21.5. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And it's actually the identical word. So I realize again that this is almost mind-bending. But the beginning of the new heavens and the new earth has already begun in your soul if you've been born again. Now, are we going to age and die and decay and need to be buried and resurrected? Of course. And yet, again, the spark of the life of heaven is in us now because we've been born again by God's Spirit. And just imagine, if you really looked at life this way, wouldn't that transform your perspective entirely? I mean, how much joy and hope this would bring us? Yes, we're getting older and our bodies are decaying, and, and yes, this world seemed to us, has gone absolutely bonkers. And yet, one day it's going to be replaced with the new heavens and the new earth, the new creation, and I've already got a foretaste of that, the first fruits of that in my soul now because I'm born again by the Spirit. Now again, this is a challenging concept to understand, especially if this is the first time you've ever considered it, so I'd be happy to explain it to you further at the door. But I would encourage you to think through how the Bible views the believer's regeneration as the beginning of the life of the new heavens and the new earth, and just the incredible transformation of perspective that can bring. Let me give you a sixth and final reflection on the Spirit's work. 
If God's Spirit has given someone the new birth, there will eventually be evidences of this spiritual life. If God's Spirit has given someone the new birth, there will eventually be evidences of this spiritual life. Now, this really shouldn't require a whole lot of explanation. The Bible teaches this virtually from cover to cover. But consider what Jesus said in Luke 6.43. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. This is a convicting thought, but realize your behavior reveals the true you. Your behavior reveals the true you. You can say you love and value all sorts of things. You, you can say you treasure all sorts of things, but if your behavior says the opposite, you're not who you claim to be. You're self-deceived. And thinking along these lines, you can claim that you're a Christian. You can claim that you believe the gospel. You can claim that you love God and the church and, and sharing the gospel and prayer. But if your life is packed with anger and bitterness and resentment and lust and greed, and if you can't ever seem to find time for, say, Bible reading, prayer, fellowship with other, other believers, it is highly likely that you're self-deceived. It's highly likely that you've not yet been born again. Listen to this description from Galatians 5.19 and following. And as I read this, ask yourself, which of these characterize my life? The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit... Is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If God's Spirit has given you the new birth, there will sooner or later be evidences of that, fruit of that. Now, of course, this fruit will be small, especially at first. It will grow painfully slowly. And certainly there will be periods of stumble, drought, backsliding, for lack of a better term, progress, more backsliding. It's a difficult journey, no doubt. And yet over time, there will be some fruit of the Spirit in a spiritually living person. Otherwise, again, there's reason to question, have you actually been born again? Now, I recognize that this entire matter is complicated and messy, and it produces an awful lot of anxiety in truly born-again people. In my pastoral ministry, it always seems as if the people that ought to be concerned about their souls aren't, and the people who ought to be resting comfortably in Jesus are all anxious and worked up. So we want to proceed carefully here. So if you'd like to explore this more, let me recommend you a book for a very wise, careful, practical, loving or study of the work of the Spirit in somebody's life. The book I recommend is 10 Questions to Diagnose Your Spiritual Health by Donald Whitney. Uh, th this is actually one of the most encouraging books that I've ever read. I struggle with this issue, you know, because I often feel like, man, I'm about the worst sinner that's ever walked the face of the earth. How, you know, how in the world could I be born again? Well, well, something like this can be helpful in properly diagnosing where you're at. And again, I found it extraordinarily helpful. That's Donald Whitney's 10 Questions to Diagnose Your Spiritual Health, and there is a copy of this in our church library. Now, to conclude this morning, I want to address those of you who might have come to the realization that 
you know, I don't think I've been born again. Maybe as you've sat there, you've concluded, I don't think I'm a Christian. For years I've attended church, for years I've carried around a nice Bible, for years I've sung all the hymns, but in reality, I am as spiritually dead as any atheist. I don't know God. The Spirit of God is not dwelling in me. Or maybe you're sitting there thinking, you know, I realize I'm self-deceived. As you read over those works of the flesh, I saw a lot of those, and as you read over the fruit of the Spirit, I didn't see any of those. I need to be saved. I need to be born again. If that's you, I love one of the verses of that song we sang just before I came up here, I will arise and go to Jesus, because that's really what you need to do. Uh, How does that verse go? Or of fitness fondly dream. Don't imagine you're going to somehow prepare yourself for this. Or of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth is you feel your need of him. What's that mean? All you need is to feel your need for Jesus. And if you feel your need for Jesus, come to him now. Come to him right now. Don't worry about all the technicalities of that ugly diagram I had up on the wall. No, come to Jesus now and find in him eternal life. The gospel of Jesus tells us that you were made to know God. You, made to know God, the almighty maker of heaven and earth, in a personal, relational way. That's why you're on this planet. And yet, like I've said, you've sinned. You've lived the way you wanted to live, regardless of how God designed life to be lived. You try to live as if there is no God, when in reality, he is a loving, gracious, heavenly father who delights to care for us. Now, because God is holy, righteous, and good, he will punish us for our sins. He will pour out his wrath on us because of our rebellion. Somewhat in this life, but far, far worse in the life to come. And unless we are forgiven, unless we are reconciled to our creator, we will experience the wrath of God eternally in that real place called hell. But under those very circumstances, God loved sinners. God loved us because he loves us, because he is gracious and merciful. And he provided a savior, a savior for all of us, a savior who can actually forgive us of our sins and reconcile us to our creator. God the Father sent God the Son down from heaven. God the Son took on flesh and blood, born as a little baby, given the name Jesus. Fully man, fully God in one person. And Jesus grew up and lived the perfect life of obedience we should have lived. Obeyed God in every way, in thought, word, and deed. But if you know the rest of the story, you know that Jesus died a horrible death. In his mid-30s, he's arrested, he's nailed to a cross, and on that cross, he bleeds out and dies. And what the Bible tells us is that on the cross, Jesus is absorbing the wrath of God in the place of sinners. The judgment of God, the curse of God that I deserve for all of my rebellion, God the Father pours it out on Jesus in my place as my substitute. Jesus dies, he's buried, but three days later, the Father raises Jesus back from the dead to testify that what I'm telling you right now is true. Jesus ascends to heaven where he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God, where he is right now, and it's from there that he pours out his Holy Spirit. And now in response to all of that, here's the invitation. Turn from your sin, embrace Jesus, be saved. It's really as simple as that. Turn from your sin, stop living your own way, stop marching to the tune of your own drummer, Embrace the Lord Jesus. Rely on his death and resurrection. Be reconciled to your creator. Enter back into that relationship with your creator that you were made for. This is why Jesus came to earth, to reconcile us to God, to forgive us of our sins, and to give us his Holy Spirit. And that's offered to you right now if you'll but turn from sin and trust Jesus. So in conclusion, come to Jesus now. If you're feeling the least need for him, come to Jesus now. 
for the first time or maybe for the thousandth time. Come to Jesus now. Turn from your sin, embrace his loving leadership, and be reconciled to your creator. And as always, if any of you would like to discuss these things further, need clarification on anything that I've said, would like somebody to pray with you or pray for you, please talk to me after the service. I'll be at the front door to greet people on the way out. But trust the Lord Jesus today, and today begin to understand what it really means to be born again. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God, you are so kind and merciful to sinners. Lord, to think that you spared us when we sinned in Adam. You spared us when we sin individually. Not only that, you gave us a wonderful, merciful Savior who saves us from all of our sins. Not only that, you give to your believing people your Holy Spirit and the gift of new life. You've been incredibly kind. Now, Lord, for those of us who have been born again, please overwhelm us with wonder, love, praise that you would have such mercy on our souls. And Lord, for those who have not yet been born again, work in their hearts, convict them of sin, draw them to yourself, and give them faith and repentance. Through Jesus we pray, amen.